in light of what we have just sung right there, and in light of uh, the last two years of walking with Jesus, I want you to listen to these words and this drama and what happens here, because we are now here. It culminates. If you want to follow along, it's page 736, or you might want to... Just close your eyes, because I think it's important to soak in the whole of this. The men who were guarding Jesus began, that's starting in verse 63, by the way. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. And then he said, Why do we need any more? They said, Why do they, we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of tax to Caesar, really, and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man, but they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was Under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform signs of some sort. He he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends, because this, before this they were enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for if he sent him back to us, you can see he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. 
But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him astray, or led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way and from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless woman and the wombs that never uh, bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and unto the hills cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? And two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers came up and mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I'll stop right there. Two years, they'd been walking with him for three. I wanted you to get the full flow of what it says happened. Because right now, you and I know him better than we did. We've seen what he's, we've heard what he's said, we've seen what he's done, the miracles that he's done. And I hope as you uh, see what's happening here, things triggered because you've walked with him now and you've learned things. Things like, well, they're accusing him of uh, not paying taxes to Caesar. Remember that? Remember all that that you know about him now? And you needed to see what's happening. What do you do with that? What, what do you do with that? Now, there are six months worth of sermons in what I just read right there. And, uh, and I'd like to give them for you all right now if I could, but I really have been asking God, what do we need today? What do you do with that? What's the so what of what we just saw? Now, if I was God, and I, my people were separated from me, and I love them so much that I would do whatever it took to bring them back so that I could be in relationship with them, and all it could ta all, the only thing that could, could work would be to send my son who would be sacrificed in their place so the relationship could be stored, restored, and the debt could be paid. 
and the sin that separates us could be forgiven. I would have done that differently right there. I would have, had, I would have shown up and like maybe uh, skipped all that suffering stuff and maybe just gone straight to the high priest and said, I'm here uh, to, to pay the debt for the sacrifice of sin. Sacrifice me. Kill me on the altar. But that's not what happened. There's something really important in the sequence of what you just said. I'm going to leave most of what happened on the cross for Daniel next week because I think there's something so important for us to get about how what I just read happened. Because what you see there is not a God who just took, showed up, took care of it, and took off. You see a God who suffered, who walked through being mocked, beaten, humiliated. A God who walked through all of that. Paul says that we share in his sufferings. His sufferings are so important. When we get baptized, we are buried with him, identifying with him in his death and burial and resurrection. When we take communion, we are identifying with his sufferings, giving us his body and his blood for you and I. His sufferings are crucial and critical, not only for the justification of your sins, but I think for the day-to-day walking it out. You know, those of you who've been following Jesus for a long time, right? Day-to-day, what do you do with suffering? The whole world is trying to figure out what is going on with suffering, and we're trying to uh, uh, say it's all in your mind, or we're trying to medicate it. The whole goal is to be happy, or we're trying to deny it. But there is no good answer to suffering if you don't understand it right here at the cross. Right here at the cross. The day-to-day of it. It says, Paul says, share in his sufferings. So when we identify with his sufferings, you know what he does? He identifies with your sufferings. I don't know if you just caught the good news of that, but a Savior who walked through all of this will walk through all of that with you. That's incredible news because it says share. Did you get that word share? It's a relational word. Because you know what? You were never meant to suffer alone. You weren't meant to suffer, by the way. And you definitely weren't meant to suffer alone. But that's what we choose all the time, it seems. We do it on our our own. We do it our, our, our own way. Now, you could suffer uh, for your own, at your own hand, things that you've done, the consequences of things that you've done. Or you could have a hurricane or an earthquake. Or you could get a diagnosis. Or you could have all of that. There's so many uh, things that, you can, that cause suffering right now. Peter said, don't be surprised when you suffer as if uh, it's not common to man. Because this is part of life. Jesus, what he does is he takes care of the suffering long term. And we have to walk in it in the present, day to day. I was, uh, uh, well, I was up in my cabin on Monday, and it seems like all I do to go to my cabin is work on the place. And I'm supposed to go there and relax, and I just go there and work, and I'm getting really frustrated with that. And uh, uh, there, we've been trying to repair the sewer in my cabin for the last six weeks. And so uh, that's been five trips up to this place. And finally, uh, Dan Voorhees gets me the right parts and I drive up there on Monday, and I'm trying to put the parts on this sewer pipe down in this ditch. Okay? Stinky deal. Smelly thing. 
And uh, I'm down on my stomach, reaching down into the ditch, trying to get the pipe and things to fit together. And I can't do it. This wrist isn't working correctly, so I don't have the strength that I used to have. And I'm just, I'm trying, and I'm getting so mad. And I'm getting so frustrated. And I'm trying, and I'm trying, and now it's a half an hour, and now it's starting to get dark. Finally, okay, I know this isn't you. This is just me. But finally, I just get up, throw tools everywhere. <laughs> Drop a few words that probably somebody heard. And, and just said, I am sick of this cabin. I want to get rid of it. All I do is work on it. Yeah, the cabin that my dad and I built 35 years ago. Yeah, the cabin that, where I've made every major decision in my life. The cabin where in my imagination I go to be with Jesus is on the deck. That cabin. I'm done with that. And I hear this. I hear, I hear this, choose. I really do. I'm sitting in the sewer, and I hear this, choose. What are you going to choose? You have a choice. Man, it just came clear to me. If I keep going, I'm choosing what? In my anger, in my frustration, I'm ultimately choosing to do it on my own. I'm choosing to do it uh, my own way, and, and in my anger... What does it lead to? It leads to isolation or despair and hopelessness. I had that picture. God gave it to me right there. Or I can do what? I can choose to take even this frustration I have. Now, I recognize it's just a day-to-day -day frustration. It's not a hurricane or an earthquake or a diagnosis. But I can choose to take that to the cross. Right there, I get this choice. And you know what? In relationship, because we share in his sufferings. Now he and I walk together with this frustration, with this suffering. I know that's a lame suffering, but this is where I got the message. And walk together with him. Because it says, share in. And here's another key point I'll give you. He doesn't remove it. It doesn't go away. To get out, you go through. You have to go through. But then when you go through whatever you're suffering with, with Jesus, there is something, instead of isolation, there's more relationship. I know God in a deeper way, in a better way. I have more compassion for other people who have sat in the sewer, uh, but uh, more compassion for people who are suffering. My character has changed because even though I wasn't meant to suffer like this, God, because I walk with Jesus through it, gives hope and help and change and transformation to be on the other side of it. Wow, is that good news? Wow, is that good news? That your suffering doesn't have to be for naught. That, it, that don't waste any suffering. And so I wanted to, when I looked at what we would talk about when we got to the cross, two years headed into this thing, I wanted to emphasize application how you live it out day to day. There's a whole lot of theology. I'm going to let Daniel do some of that next week. But I wanted to get to what does it mean for you day to day? And I say all suffering points back to the cross. All healing points to the resurrection, by the way. But all suffering points back to the cross where you can go. You can lay it down. You can say, it's yours, Jesus. Walk with me. I don't know what to do. It's where you, you cry. Well, there ought to be more tears going on, to be honest with you if we're going to be real with Him. 
That's what we ought to, it all goes back to the cross. So what I thought I'd do, I wanted a, I wanted a good testimony of some, somebody who was walking this through in a really uh, profound way. Um, and so uh, Bill Williams is a mentor of mine, and uh, we've been meeting for years, and he's been helping me with leadership and following God. And they've been walking through a tough thing for the last nine months. And so I, I called him up, and I said, hey, would maybe you guys might be willing to uh, give a testimony. Seven to eight minutes uh, is about what I'm looking at. And uh, we get together, and he says, well, we'll pray about that. And he comes back and says, well, we think we should, but we can't do it in seven or eight minutes. That would be like driving past Yellowstone and going, there's Yellowstone. It won't, it won't work like that. You, we need more time. Well, how much do you need? Uh, 20, 25. I've been working on this one for months. You know, the big one, the cross. Well, what do you got? And he showed me, and I went, oh, you got to do that. You better, you better share that. We need to, we need to hear that. And so uh, I am honored to uh, give uh, the stage over because um, I think you have something uh, that you're going to be blessed with, especially if you're in a darker time right now. So I want to welcome Bill and Kathy up, and uh, they're going to tell you their story of the last nine months and what they've learned. And uh, uh, come on up, and we'll get all, everything ready for you. Thank you, thank you. Can you guys hear me? Let me tell you a little word about this mentorship thing. This is another, it's a synonym for being really old. That's kind of what it is. And here's the key to mentorship. I do a lot of this. Um, you live a long time and you make a lot of mistakes and you find out the age of the people you're talking to and say, yeah, I remember mile marker 40. I got on the highway early. I remember mile marker 40 and here's the pit hole. Look out for that pit hole. And that's kind of what that's all about. So I basically am just uh, regurgitating the things that the Lord has, has done with me. And Charlie calls me up to do this. And I says, okay, wait a minute. He says, yeah, how do you say it? He said, I'm doing a message on suffering and torture. And I'd like you and Kathy to speak. <laughs> and I go, boy, I feel so honored. Gosh, thank you, thank you. That's just really cool. But actually, it is cool, and I'll tell you why it's cool. Uh, you don't go through something this profound without wanting the Lord to use it in the lives of others, okay? So it's been painful for us to, to relive some of this, but we feel really blessed to do this, and we feel blessed to do it for your sake. Um, so I'm going to talk, Kathy will probably talk more a little bit about what happened. I'll talk a little more about how we dealt with it. But before we get into that, I just want to tee this up with a couple of things. Um, one is, and by the way, Kathy and I cry a lot. <laughs> so just, I'm going to try and keep my composure, but some things just hurt too much. Uh, so you can pray for me that I keep it together and she keeps it together. <laughs> but with her character, Kathy, uh, there were a few tears early of shock. When you get a death sentence, that's pretty shocking. You're never ready for that. I don't care how mature you are. Uh, but 98% of her tears have been tears of thankfulness and joy for kind acts from people and friends and verses here and there and just a beautiful sunrise. And sh This woman, 
never complained one time. Not one negative self-pity, woe is me, what has God done to me? Never, not once. And there was a lot of pain, and we're going to tell you, and it's going on. We're, we're, we're not done with this ordeal. Um, and secondly, I was obviously the caregiver. And I've got to tell you, I've had a lot of honors in my life. We've been together 53 years, and this is far and away, far and away, the deepest honor I have ever had to be her caregiver. Because I want to tell you something about this woman. She's been two things for 53 years, except for that three weeks she dumped me in college. But we got that, we figured that out, came back. She's been really, really good to me and really, really good for me. So I never begrudged one second of this. Um, and in teeing this up, I gotta tell you, I, I'm a duck, deductive thinker and speaker. Um, here's the truth, and then validate it and prove it. We're gonna take the business this way, and here are the reasons why. If some VP or somebody came up to me and said, well, this is true, and this is true, and we can do this, and we can do that, but make your point, what are you gonna do? Deduction, so I wanna give you a great, and by the way, I am a marketing guy, okay? I have made my life trying to explain complex markets to the healthcare community and employees. So I like graphs and charts, and so I did a little visual for you up here. And I want to give you an umbrella first that fits over this, and we'll do a little scripture memory together, and it's Psalm 23, verse 4. And Psalm 23, verse 4 says, David says, King David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, point two. Hopefully you guys will be able to see this well enough. Point three, the reasons for thou art with me. And point four, thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Now, we all learned that as kids, the Good Shepherd Psalm, right? And it's kind of a feel-good thing. This is about suffering and major suffering. Most Bible scholars think when David wrote this, he was in a place called Mahanam, and he was about to do battle with his son, who he loved dearly, and he is suffering. They also think he might have been, he wasn't a shepherd boy, he talks about his enemies, he might have been in exile from Saul, but he was in a dark place. And the battle with Absalom, if Absalom wins, David dies and loses the kingdom. He's got to go to battle with him, right? If he wins, his son dies. This is between a rock and a hard place. It's not good. So how can a guy under circumstances like that say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil? That's, that's pretty amazing. Now, a word of pain before we really get, go, get going here. There are people here that have suffered worse than Kathy and I far and away. There are people I'm sure that have lost their children, lost a spouse, okay? So we're just really the representatives for this topic we're talking about, but we have not led a coddled life like you guys have not led coddled lives, and we are really, really familiar with pain. There's all kinds of pain, so what we have here in my little diagram is we go through life, the ups and the downs, the hills and the valleys, okay, and we, we run into this thing called the valley of death. Let's just kind of stop there for a second. Now, there's all kinds of pain that we go through, and we've done this. 
There's the pain of raising your kids. They make some stupid decisions. There's pain when they get older, and there's family, frictional pain. We've had that. We've had situations where bad behavior's almost blown our family apart. That really, really hurts, doesn't it? Okay, we, Kathy and I both have chronic illnesses that we deal with all the time, and we're not gonna talk about that, so we know a little bit about that. Our parents have died. We know the pain of that. 15 years, they're caregivers. We know a little about that. So we're experienced with this pain stuff. The pain of leadership, my personal favorite. It's been the most painful, I think, for me. Um, and there's real pain in this. You take these two people over here. If you don't think Doug and Rebecca spilled some emotional blood birthing this place, you are wrong. If you don't think that Charlie and Dan spill emotional blood leading this place, you're wrong. They don't put a sign outside that says, only mature people allowed in here. You know, that's a great goal for the church, but it's not a prerequisite. prerequisite. And so consequently, we misbehave sometimes, and that's painful. I one time in one of my assignments, I hope you've never had the had to do this, but in one day had to fire 275 people. Downsize an organization, big company, but they weren't strangers. We had almost 3,000 employees. They're people I personally knew because nobody got into that company unless they went through me. Because the corporate culture and the values of the business, they are all important. And I knew about their kids. I've had to do that three times. Listen, there is pain involved in leadership. But I got news for you guys. When you get right here, the valley of death, like we have been through, that is a profound, deep, dark pain that's far more painful than the pains we've talked about. So here's the deal. We're going to pass through these things, and the valley of death is kind of right here, and then we're going to shoot out this wall where is Christ? He's in our hearts, but Colossians 3 says, set your mind on the things above, where Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. He's there too, and we're going to go be with him. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the far country. Now that is really cool. Eternity, we have got a lot to look forward to, but we're not there yet. So how do you deal with this? So I'm going to keep coming back to these four principles, and it's going to come down to this. See, the valley of death, that's true. I cannot spare you from that. You are going to go through the valley of death. It's all part of the passage to get right there. Thou art with me, that's also true. You might not recognize it, but we want to help equip you so you do. And this is also true, thy rod and thy staff. The good shepherd, that's how he guides and nurtures the sheep. It's the word of God, it's the Bible, it's counsel from godly friends. It's there for us, but this one, David got to a point where it's like, okay, I have no reason to fear this because he had done so much experientially, spent so much time in his Bible that he just knew there's no reason to fear evil. That's where we need to be and that's where people fail because when you get up here, there's only one of two things that are gonna happen. It's gonna shoot you out where you're closer to Jesus or it's gonna shoot you this way where you're further away from him. One of the two and we wanna help you get there. So. I hope I stayed on time here, my love. I think I'm doing pretty good. So we walked into the valley of death, and I want tell, Kathy to tell you about, this has been 10 months now, this is starting on December the 10th. 
a Saturday up in our bedroom. Love, you want to take it from here for a while? Okay. So um, we had just finished snowshoeing, and I was upstairs getting ready to get in the shower, and um, it was uh, unusual. I heard this little voice, and it said, Kathy, when's the last time you've had a mammogram? And it's getting to be the end of the year when you start tying up loose ends, and so I um, thought, golly, I cannot remember when I've had one. But I had had um, my physicals on time with, with this Dr. Stone in Denver, and I was there in May, and everything was fine, so I, I thought, well, I, I better pay a little more attention, and as I took a shower, I found a really large lump in my right breast, and so... Um, it was a shock, and um, so I got out of the shower, and I was still optimistic because I didn't really have any of this going on with, on my mother's side of the family, and I didn't know my dad's side that well. And so I thought, well, you know, it's probably just a cyst, but I did make an appointment with my doctor on Monday, and on Wednesday she uh, had some room to see me. So Bill and I traveled over there, and um, she checked me out, and she, she was pretty shocked, too, because there had been no lumps in May. And she said, um, this isn't the easy stuff. You know, I, I think we need to start getting your brother involved. And my brother, his name's Kevin, he is a pretty well-known radiation oncologist in Denver. And so while Bill and I were sitting in her office, she called my brother, and my brother took over um, getting me the care I needed. So his first thing, he got me an appointment the next day at Sally Joe Clinic in Denver, and I started through this whole series of diagnostic tests. The first being a mammogram, then they did an ultrasound, and because the ultrasound didn't look very good, they did a biopsy right away. And then Bill and I drove home, and um, we waited on Friday for my brother to call me with results. And I had a feeling it wasn't going to be great because my brother never called me to tell me, oh, it's no big deal, Kathy, and he's not a real emotional person. So he called on Friday, and he said it was positive and that he figured that it probably was even before we did all this. And he said um, to find out the grade and the stage, we need to do some more testing and I want you back here on Monday. So on Monday, um, they did an MRI and again, Bill and I waited through the whole day to get the results of that test. And so we decided to go out to dinner, and we were, had finished dinner, and we were just going into the parking lot. It was a really cold night, and um, we get a call from Kevin. And um, Kevin said, um, Kathy said, um, this is worse than we thought. You know, it, it is a grade three, stage three cancer. It, not only do you have the one other lump, but you have another satellite tumor that's cancerous. And the lymph node in your right chest wall is also 
inflamed and probably cancerous. So he said, um, if it has spread outside that wall, then the only thing we can do is buy you time. We can't cure you. So he said, um, and he said, you are triple negative, which means, I won't go into the details of that, except that triple negative means that no hormones or proteins have caused my cancer. And so normally you could treat with hormone therapy or something like that, but once you have a triple negative, your only option is chemotherapy. Now, I had been through the death of several family members, and I'd watched one of them go through chemo, and I said, I'll never do chemo, never. And my brother said, you know, Kathy, you've got to quit thinking of it this way. Chemo is not your enemy. Chemo is your friend. Cancer is your enemy. And so I said, okay, you know, and so I agreed that I would do this treatment. And so the next day, um, I did a PET scan, and then Bill and I waited again, and that was the first good news we had gotten in a while, and he said, it is contained, we can, we can cure this one. And so he um, arranged for me to get started on the chemotherapy right away because it was an aggressive tumor, and they needed an aggressive treatment. And so on December 22nd, I went in surgery to have a port put in so that they could administer the chemotherapy. And then later that afternoon, I began um, a four-month regimen of chemotherapy, two different drugs. The first one was called adriomycin cytoxin, or AC for short. And it's brutal. I just have no words to describe how how awful it is. And um, I understand they had to use something really aggressive to attack something aggressive. So I started that, and then they did a genetic test on me to determine what kind of surgery I would require. Because if the genetic test turns out positive, then it means that you have a mutation that's probably been there, that's been there since birth, really, since you were conceived. And if you have that genetic mutation, then you have a chance of it getting worse, going to the next breast, anyway, continuing. So they do a complete uh, double mastectomy, and if it's not, they do a lumpectomy. And um, it took a while to get the test back, but it was positive. So I knew that my surgery path was going to be the chemo and then uh, double mastectomy. So um, I prepared for the chemo, and um, it's so toxic that the nurses wear what looks like spacesuits when they administer it to you, because if it gets on their skin, it burns them. So I, uh, I began to, to take this drug, and um, it caused extreme fatigue beyond anything I had ever imagined. And the reason for that is that your red cell count can precipitously drop, which mine did. And I began not to be even able to do simple things like get down my steps, take a shower. And um, 
I couldn't do any household task, and Bill became my total caregiver. And he did an incredible job. I knew this would happen. <laughs> but um, the other side effects, um, because it attacks all the fast-growing cells in your body, which are all, the t all your digestive system, your mouth, your nose, and your eyes, I lost um, the ability to eat because it also destroys the saliva in your mouth, so there's just really nothing to chew with. And my throat became swollen. It sores in my mouth. And, um, and it totally removed my lack of taste and appetite. So for a while there, I was on a purely liquid diet because I couldn't handle food. And uh, my eyes watered constantly, my nose ran constantly. So I was uh, pretty much of a mess. <laughs> and um, the other thing it does is, is a thing they call chemo brain, and it is very real. And um, I lost my ability to concentrate. And um, I am a real organized person and I lost my ability to remember things I'd done, and I started making mistakes that I would never have made in tasks that were mine, and um, that went on pretty much through the whole treatment. And then I went on to um, the second drug, Taxol, which was not as punitive as the first one, but its effects are still cumulative, and so you the fatigue goes on and on. But the side effects of that one that I started to get are neuropathy, and if you don't know what that is, it um, starts with a tingling in your extremities, like your fingers and toes, legs, and it can lead to permanent nerve damage in your certain areas of your body. So I, um, I dealt with that, and then I had another symptom that was unusual for Taxol, but I got it. So everywhere on my body where I had sunspots, and I had a lot of them on my legs, especially because I grew up in that era where that was a healthy look, to be sunburned and suntan. And what happened was the Taxol started attacking all those sunspots, and they became open sores. So I was really going through a Job experience at that time. And um, Bill will kind of give you his, uh, what he struggled with during that. Oh, I, I'll try and be crisp. We turned it into a family affair. Uh, turns out with the genetic test that her sis our siblings had to be tested, her sister tested positive too, meant she had an 80% chance of getting breast cancer. So. Denise chose to have a bilateral mastectomy, and the second phase of that is next week. Our kids had to be tested, and uh, our oldest son, we're still waiting for the results from our youngest son, but the oldest son was negative for breast cancer, but positive for ovarian. And he's got three daughters, three of our granddaughters, so when they get to be 18, they'll have to be tested, and go into a, if they're tested positive, they go into a special protocol, but praise God for this that we know, and they would have to do their childbearing in their 20s and in their early 30s, maybe by 35, have a total hysterectomy. So, you know, implications in chemo, guys, 
it's complex, and people say, oh, my Aunt Betty went through chemo, and my Uncle John went through chemo. There are hundreds of chemo drugs, and they're not equally as punitive, and the physiology of the person comes into being, but it really, really hammered Kath. And it got to the point, and it's cumulative that we have two stories in our house. She couldn't get down the stairs, couldn't get in the shower, she'd pass out. I was giving her sponge baths and carrying her to the bathroom and trying to get food down her, and this went on for weeks and months. It wasn't a short-lived thing, so this was kind of a daily thing. And one of the things, just two or three things that really got to me, the women will appreciate this, but you know you're gonna lose your hair, and, and so we were prepared for that, and we thought, eh, no big deal. And hers came out in little splotches, and then one day, on a Saturday, I just hear this shriek from the shower, and it was like somebody pulled a lever or a drain, and all of her hair came out at one time, just boom, and it looked like a bird's nest on the shower floor, and she was, she was just in shock, and I quick got a garbage bag and picked her hair up, and we got out, and I will never forget the look on her face looking in that mirror, because a woman so much, a lot of their dignity is in their hair and their sense of identity, you know, and gone, and there were just stragglers all over the place, so it was real quiet, so I wrapped a towel around her and got out my shaving cream and shaved her head. <laughs> you know, that was, that was just, I ached for her so much, and she was just a champion through that. And then the next thing that really, this was probably my personal low point, I had a lot of friends in healthcare, and sadly, they're all like me. They're a bunch of type A control freaks, intense, serious, and inbound information. You need to be going to Sloan Kettering. I know the president of MD Anderson, and I know an experimental protocol at UCI, and just really, I'm trying to figure out the right care team, and, how, and it's just like, okay, I got this, guys. Take it easy. But, but one person in particular, a provider, an oncologist, really felt like he needed to share with me the downside and where all the pitfalls were in chemotherapy. And this guy, in a very, very brutal, straightforward clinical way, because he knew, I, I'm not a doctor, but I understand a lot of things clinically, he just hammered me with the downside for about 45 minutes. And I kept my composure, and I'll tell you what, I went out of there and I had to find a quiet place next to the road. It's the only time in this whole process that I totally lost hope where my thought process went into very, very negative places, like this must be the instrument that is going to be used to bring Kathy into the presence of Christ. And how do I message this to the kids, the grandkids? How will I live without her? And I started going through this litany of things. It's like, time out, that's not true. The Holy Spirit kind of came along and things like Psalm 94, 19, when my anxious thoughts arise within me, thy consolations delight my soul. And I began to think this through and just ask the Lord to speak to me and pretty soon my mind got turned around And because I, I wanted to be strong for Kathy. A friend of mine told me, man, save your tears for the shower. <laughs> be there for her. And I did that a lot. So I came home and said, well, how did that go? And I said, you know, Evidently, we're dealing with something serious here. <laughs> Just kind of, I like to use humor sometimes to diffuse the pain of things, but it was really, really painful. And I'd like to make one point here for you guys that 
And it's got to do with these two. Thou art with me, and thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Right after that hair thing, I was walking around the house one day, and maybe one time I've heard the voice of God. It was a, a big voice in our pilgrimage, but this voice says, she's gonna be fine, you have a big battle to fight. Boom, that was the end of it. And it was right around the first of the year, and right on the heels of that, I get this card, this Christmas card, from a guy by the name of Marty Detmer that used to work for me in Chicago. Marty was a very cool guy, Joe Montana's tight end at Notre Dame, big bulky guy, ran all the customer service, and I looked at this card, and Julie, his wife, is not, it's a wedding of their kids that had just happened, and I opened it up, and at first I thought, boy, I hope Julie's okay, she's not there, and I opened up and there's like a little over a page. Well, Marty, Julie had died from cancer, and she had the same kind of cancer Kathy had, and she had about a 10-year period of relapse of uh, where it went into remission, excuse me. And um, Kathy and I, this what the, I'm not gonna read it to you, but we had the privilege of being a primary force in, in Marty and Julie becoming Christians through the ministry of this company I was running. And this letter is all about how they never would have made it and how it was only the presence of Christ and how comforting it was, and thank you for being there for us, and so forth. And it reinforced to me the importance of, boy, the kingdom of God. You guys, your jobs, what you do, it's so strategic, and it's so cool. And to be part of that, so I thought, I gotta call Marty. I really need to call Marty, because he's gotta help me here. And I called him up, and I said, brother, I am, I am a hurting unit. And you know, we got caught up and whatnot, and she, Julie had been down the same path Kathy was going down. And he says, yeah, it's kind of like, she looks like she's dying, doesn't she? Yep. Pallor's changing. Yep. And so I went down all of these things. He said, yep. He said, I can tell you what, you're in the hardest part. That was harder than dying for us, okay, going through that the first time because it's unknown and it's so scary. But he was like a forward observer in the military. He told me all the things to look for and it so encouraged me, and I called him and called him and called him, and he was really my friend through all that. And then the Lord, guys, I want to make this first point. And the point is the, the incredible power of the word of God and of truth, that rod and that staff. You've got to get familiar with this book. You've got to do that for your own sake because it will get you through everything. And the Lord... Listen, Jesus, when he was at Gethsemane, he wasn't singing happy praise songs, you know. He had a situation called hemotidrosis where the capillaries by his sweat glands burst under extreme pressure. It happens in wartime a lot. And the blood mingles with the sweat. Boom. So this, you just don't have time to really think logically. And, but the Lord would send me these verses from years of scripture memory. And they would just comfort me. Psalm 68, 19, and 20. I'd be going along doing the dishes or the laundry or something and, you know, bless the Lord who daily bears our burdens. To the Lord our God belong deliverances and escapes from death. 
Thanks, Lord, I'm not here alone. But the real topper for me on the power of the word and why it's so critical and how God uses that to, to guide us is we have been in four or five hospitals, three or four clinics, and I was in this one hospital and this person who worked there, we get to know him, she comes up to me one day, Kathy was kind of out of it. She was just coming out of the AC and it was at, at its worst. This was for me anyway. And so this, this person says to me, you know, I see this so often. You mustn't blame God and you mustn't go into self-pity. So many people do that. And I was really offended. <laughs> I, gotta tell, I did not handle this well. And so I said to this woman, time out. And I said, it. you can tell I'm a little bit type A. Time out. Why would I get angry with our absolute best ally? Nobody loves Kathy as much as Jesus Christ loves Kathy. That would be stupid. Number two, nobody, number three, nobody hates sin and death and disease and suffering as much as Jesus Christ. And he went on a cross so that we wouldn't have to deal with this in eternity. Isn't that cool? And this woman just kind of looks at me like, well, yeah, just more people ought to think like that. And I said, more people ought to read their Bibles. And so she's kind of, she would stay away from me whenever we went into the clinic after that. <laughs> Whoa, this guy's a little loose cannon here. And so I put Kathy, and I was kind of steaming to, to assume, I guess a lot of people do it, but to get angry with God? That just doesn't make sense to me. And so at any rate, we're going out. My thought, honestly, guys, my thought was, wow, these truths are really deep in me. <laughs> these are foundational and they're deep in me. And then I just thought, even if she dies, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And I had this rejuvenation of strength and of peace and of rest that we were in a good place, an absolutely good place. Um, right there, he's with me and he's going to give you the kind of coaching and guidance you need to get through that. And then the second point, and you're going to think this is really weird, but I want to speak to this, is we decided, and I want Kathy to amplify on this, that our relationship with Christ and our personal growth and pleasing God through this ordeal were more important than healing, that they were absolutely the more important thing. And I want her to speak to that, and then I'll tell you what we did with it. So... Um we started, I started to be able to have quiet times again and um, or, or to be, at least be able to absorb what I was trying to get out of the word. And I decided that going through this and, and being in such misery that I didn't want to miss what God was trying to teach me, that that was the primary purpose in this suffering was to learn and then how could I please him? How could I be obedient to whatever it was that he told me and whatever I, else I learned or unlearned through the process? And um, for years, I've read uh, Oswald Chambers. I don't know if any of you use it. My utmost for his highest is a little devotional. And he says it better than I could, so I'm going to quote him if you don't mind. And he said, at all costs, a person must have the right relationship with God. We must continually remind ourselves of the purpose of life. 
We are not destined to happiness, nor to health, but to holiness. And so for Bill and I, that became a real source of comfort. And even now, I look back with fondness at the times that we spent. We started reading more serious books and listening. We Bill found C.S. Lewis on tape, and we listened to him on tape. And um, he's going to tell you more about that. Yeah, so I thought, where's the best place to go in the Word, that great anchor, that rod and staff, to really guide us through this? And this is where you're going to think is weird. We thought, boy, we need to be reading the book of Job. So we did, <laughs> we did three months in the book of Job, 42 chapters, because we didn't want to make his mistake. Here's a guy who suffered. And at the end of the day, you know, Job, um, there are two or three things going on there. It's a complex book, but he kind of had a pity party. He kind of pointed to his righteousness and why me and kept asking the why questions all the time. And finally, God had had enough of that. And in chapter 38, the Lord says, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? And then he goes through four chapters, not defending himself, not saying why I don't answer these things, but talking about just who he is and his majesty. And Job finally in chapter 42 says, whoa, I spoke about things too wondrous for me. He says, I am the man who darkens counsel without knowledge. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And so we didn't want to make those mistakes. And we prayed over that and over that. And, and because Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we might observe all the words of these commandments. He's not going to tell us some things. And the valley of death is a painful place. And you've got to trust him with that. And so we just decided we are not going to let the unknown and the mystery and the depth of the pain compromise our trust and our faith in God. We got a bigger God than that and a bigger future than that. We're headed to the far country. And another thing Job didn't do that was glaring to me is he was not thankful, not one word of thankfulness. And we began every day to say, okay, what can we be thankful for today? And sometimes it was to be able to stand up in the shower or get a bowl of soup down or whatever. And I still do that. I'll tell you what, take your cell phone when you start to have a pity party and go to your photos and start right the day you're on and go back about a year. And you're going to find a lot of things there to be really thankful for. A person that you really like, an experience you had, a great meal, a beautiful view of the mountains. There's a lot to be thankful for in life. Um, and then I, so that's really critical. The healing would be nice. To say we didn't pray for healing and our friends didn't pray for healing, which we're deeply thankful for our pals and a lot of you. Kathy's Bible study and our neighbors, super thankful for that. But that became not the paramount thing for us because I'm going to draw this out for you in a minute, but I think for the sake of time, do you mind if I kind of wrap this up? No, go ahead. Okay. So <laughs> Kathy had, in May, a big surgery. We were there for... A, you know, three days. Uh, it's a two-part thing to do the, the, mam the reconstruction. And then she uh, had a bunch of pathology, although I think I will let you tell this part. So anyway, I, um, I was a complete responder. Uh, they found no 
cancer in any of the pathology from the surgery. And to just to be sure that we were doing the right thing, we went ahead and I requested a PET scan and the PET scan was also clear. So I, I really believe God answered the prayers of so many of my friends, my Bible study, my family, who um, they used my medical team to heal me. Thanks, love. So that was, let's wrap this up, though. I want to go back over here and make some points about this, because it begs the question, doesn't it? Where are we now? Okay? And C.S. Lewis, and I want you guys to think seriously about this. I don't know if you can read this. C.S. Lewis, every night Kathy and I go to bed and we read Lewis or Thomas Akempis or somebody like that. And Lewis one time said, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, said, God, and it's about human destiny, he said, God in his grace gives us really pleasant ends to stay in along our journey, but he never wants us to mistake it for home. And then he also, somebody else asked him, it's kind of cute, but said, did you become a Christian to, become, to be happy? Were you looking for happiness? And he said, heavens no, a good bottle of port will make me happy. <laughs> or if I worship myself, I'll be happy. I was looking for truth and eternal reality. And here's the eternal reality, guys. We are headed over here. We have got, a, and he called it the far country, we have got a brilliant future ahead of us. But these pleasant ends, this is where we get our comfort. I won't put all the list down there. Comfort, security, joy, and that's kind of what we long for. And you think a complete responder that, oh, good, I'm back here. I don't have to deal with this anymore. That is not Kathy and mine's view at all because it's like the Lazarus effect. We got to stay. Julie's was 10 years, but we know that this is going to come back someday and we're gonna to have to face this again. And so we have decided, and I would give you this advice, you should do this, we decided the safest and best place is to camp in the valley, <laughs> like a camping trip. You know you're going home, you're going back to your real life, but the valley's pretty cool and you're up by Snowmass Lake. Well, we're camping in this valley because someday we're gonna go home. And we are not going back there because we can't, because every quarter, MRIs, blood test, has it come back? One day it will come back for both of us. So it's better just to live here because these experiences, our doctors told us this and nurses said that people have one of two responses to these valley of death things. They, they either come through it greatly through faith and they get closer to Jesus. That's another thing about camping in the valley. Notice you're closer to Jesus than back here where you're just comfortable. Or they get spit out the other end and they lapse into self-pity and they, their faith dwindles and erodes. Well, we're not gonna let that happen to us and you shouldn't let that happen to you either because here's the point, guys. You have some decisions to make. David came to a settled place. You have to cooperate. You have to get serious about your Bible and you have to say, okay, this is a really great God. I can trust him and I'm going to go through this with him. But people don't plan. They don't prethink it. The disciples, Jesus, they were right here before the valley of death experience. He said, pray that you don't fall into temptation. They fell asleep. They wanted, it says because of sorrow in Luke, they fell asleep. Jesus didn't. He prayed and he stepped up to the task at hand. Praise God for that. 
And the people that get hammered by this, I asked our nurse liaison, I was out in the, for 11 hours with the last surgery about a, two weeks ago, Susie, my nurse liaison, and I'm working on this in the lobby. She's the one keeping you up to speed on the surgery. And so I said, Susie, I wanna ask you a question. You see a lot of these experiences. You know, is this, is this right? Do you think this is right? Do people either grow and mature? Or she says, the people that think it through have faith and have a plan prosper. The people that don't get crushed. And she'd been seeing it for 30 years. So it really surprised me, gang, that God was with me, I, that he'd been preparing me for 45 years and for Kathy for this moment. I want to put you on notice and challenge you and appeal to you. Get serious about your walk with God because you can be so comfortable and know without a doubt that you're going to be victorious. Isn't that cool? But you have to, there's a part for you to play. So we're going to go to communion here pretty soon and open communion. And I just want you to, to start your plan. I want you to start to, and your thoughts and prayers should be something like this. Lord, there's going to be things in life that are mysterious that I'm never going to understand. I'll understand it when I get to the far country, but I don't understand it now. And secondly, Lord, I am not going to challenge you when I come to my moment of pain and doubt. I am gonna, my goal is going to be to walk with you. Now, will you take however many years or months or days that I have, and will you help me understand how close you really are and help me to nurture me with your rod and your staff so that I'm prepared and ready? You have a chance to do that. You don't need to be surprised and you don't need to be crushed because you have the cool God in the universe, okay? Now, Kath, if you would just, sorry for that, I get preachy 101, sorry about that, but <laughs> if you'd pray for us, love. I will. Lord, dear Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you for uh, Charlie giving us this opportunity to share this with you. And, um, Lord, I know there are others in the audience are, who have, are either going through this themselves or they have friends or close family members or uh, they may be going through something, um, a different kind of suffering right now, Lord, a, a divorce, a financial issue. You know, there are many things that can really tear you apart. And um, so, Father, I pray you would meet them wherever they are right now, this minute, and fill them with your Holy Spirit, your love, your grace, your mercy. And Father, and Father, I pray that you would encourage them to really just want that right relationship with you above all others, and that they would seek you and find you. And we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Yeah, and I'd just like to add one last word. If we can help any of you guys through our journey, Charlie and Dan know how to get in touch with us. It would be an honor for us to do that. Absolutely an honor. Because this is a very close place to be with Jesus. And it's a beautiful place. And we're going to an even better place. Okay? So let's, let's rejoice in that.